Well, amen. What a great song to begin this time of teaching with. I want to say welcome. Thanks for being here today. Thanks especially for those of you who are joining us online. Thanks for worshiping with us today as well. Um, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn your Bible to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Uh, Ruth is the book that we're studying, and we're on to chapter 3 now, and it's so good. I'm excited to be able to look at it with you. Now, as we begin, I want to remind you that this book, the book of Ruth, begins with pain, brokenness, and loss, which is something that all of us can relate to at some level or another. We understand what it's like to have pain, to have brokenness, to have loss in our life. But the beautiful thing about this book is it reminds us that even in our dark days, God is still there. His light is still present. And as we look at the story of Ruth, we have the advantage of seeing how God's mercies, his light is woven throughout this book. It's the thread of just his mercy. We see it because we have that advantage of looking at it. We even get to the advantage of seeing how, the, how it ends, the glorious ending of this story. But the people that are living the story, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, they don't see all of that. They're just taking every day one step at a time. And yet we see God's hand of mercy, God's light in their darkest days. And I think it's so encouraging for us because we understand dark days. And when we recognize that God is mercy, he's still there. He's still present even in the midst of the challenges and the, and the circumstances of our life. He's still working even when we can't see it. When we understand that, um, we then have greater confidence to step forward in faith one step at a time. Because we know that God is there working behind the scenes. And that's the beautiful part of this story, that God is working behind the scenes, and he's a merciful and gracious God. Amen? Amen. It is good news. And so this is why it's, I'm excited to be able to look at it and continue to look at this with you. And now, just as a reminder, this story of Ruth takes place during the time period of the judges. And I've just mentioned this each week. The time period of the judges was not a moral high point for the nation of Israel. In fact, this is the statement about uh, this time period in Judges 21. It says this, In those days there, the, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this was a time when there was just, it was not a good time politically, socially, spiritually in their history. So it's really hard for us to relate to, of course. Um, but this is what's taking place in this time. It's a dark period for them. But of course, in the midst of it, again, like I said, um, God is still at work. Now, the story be, do, does begin with um, pain and heartache. It begins with a, a famine in the land. And it, and it focuses in on a family living in the city of Bethlehem, the place that it says it's, it's called the house of bread. And really the, the, the irony is there's no bread in the house of bread. There's famine in the land. And because of the famine, um, you have a choice. You can either turn and trust God for his provision, or you can focus on what can I do and figure out how to provide for myself. And so it focuses in on a, a couple, Elimelech and Naomi. And they choose to move away from God's people, God's presence, the promised land, and they move to a place called Moab, which was east of Israel in modern-day Jordan, which was an absolutely stunning move. They step away from God and his provision through his people and his promised land, and they move to the Moabite land, which 
you just need to understand the Moabites were perpetually the enemy of God's people. They were constantly opposed. In fact, they were cursed by God um, because he was adamantly opposed to them. And so they, was really, they had no reason to go there. But this is where they choose to go. They go away from God and his plan to the place of Moab. Now, they go away to, to escape a famine, but it's there that they end up with funerals. And so as they settle into the land of Moab, Elimelech, the husband, dies, leaving Naomi uh, all, all alone and um, vulnerable and with her two sons. And, but rather than go back to Bethlehem, Naomi makes a decision to allow her sons to marry Moabite women in that land. Now, this was also a stunning decision because God was adamantly opposed, not only that they live, not live in Moab, but that they wouldn't intermarry with the Moabites. And part of that has to do with the fact that the Moabites worshipped a false god, Chemosh, and among, uh, um, among the worship practices of, of this false god is that they would sacrifice children to this false deity, which God, it was detestable to God. So he wanted them to have nothing to do with the Moabites. But, but Naomi allows her sons to marry Moabite women. And it says in the, in the passage that they were planning on staying there just for a little while. But a little while turns into 10 years. So they're there for quite some time. So not only had she gone away from God's plan, she had also given in to the culture and the surroundings around her. Now, then after those 10 years, then tragedy strikes again. Her two adult sons die, leaving Naomi now um, with just two Moabite daughters-in-law. And it's at this point that she decides, hey, it's time for me to go back to Bethlehem, a decision that she should have made a long time ago. She decides to go back. And as she goes back, she begins with her daughters-in-law because they're her responsibility. They're now her responsibility to care for. So she takes them with them. But along the way, she just gives up. She's like, this is too much for me. I can't do it. I can't support them. I can't take care of them. She feels like God has given up on her, so she gives up on the people that God has placed in her life to care for. So she tells her daughters-in-law to go home, to go back to Moab. And one of the daughters-in-law does. Orpah goes back, but Ruth um, is resistant. But listen to what um, Naomi says to Ruth in in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. This is what Naomi says. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. So Naomi is essentially saying, go back to your family and to your false gods. So go back to idolatry, essentially. Not a great evangelism strategy. Go back to idolatry. That's what she's saying. She's given up on on the responsibilities, this person in her life. Now, Ruth, on the other hand, doesn't give up. She has an incredible response back to Naomi. Look at what, how Ruth responds in chapter 1. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth makes this incredible statement. And it's, it's contrasted with Naomi. Naomi had gone away from God and given in and given up. But Ruth, on the other hand, even in the midst of her own pain and sorrow, says, no, I am not giving up on God. In fact, I'm pursuing your God, the God of Israel, and I'm not giving up on you. You may have given up on me, may have given up on God. I am not giving up on you. Naomi recognizes that Ruth's not going away. So she says, okay, 
Come along, we'll go back to Bethlehem. Now they get back to Bethlehem, and as they arrive, uh, Naomi is, is in such a dark spot in her life that she, in, a, in many ways, has distorted the narrative of what's gone on. She's given up on God, and she believes that God has given up on her. Listen to how she, what she says to the people in the town as she arrives back in Bethlehem. She says this, don't call me Naomi, she told the people in Bethlehem. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Then she says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So again, there's a distortion here. She says, I went away full. No, that's not true. She went away in a famine. She was starving. And then she says, I've come back empty. Again, not really the truth because Ruth is right next to her. Ruth's saying, hello, I'm right here. And, and yet Naomi is just so broken, she can't even see the resources that God has given to her in the midst of her darkness, in the midst of her challenges, which again, we can relate to Naomi in many ways throughout this whole story. But this is the spot that she is in. And so then, but at the end of chapter one, it closes with not only Ruth saying, I'm gonna stick with you, Naomi, but also it begins with this barley harvest. So they arrive in Bethlehem just in time for uh, the barley season. That is, it's, it's a, there's famine is, is now over and there's now a harvest to be had. And so that's where it ends in chapter one. Then chapter two, we see Ruth step up and say, I want to, they're starving. They, they just moved to Bethlehem. They're starving. They have no food. So Ruth steps up and says, I'm going to glean and make sure that we're, we have some food. And so she steps forward. And in the midst of her stepping forward, we see God working behind the scenes. So let me show you. It says this, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Then, next verse. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So I highlight that because what I want you to see is Ruth steps out in faith. What we see is these statements in this, this chapter of coincidence. Oh, how lucky that she just happened to come across this field and she happened to interact with this man named Boaz. But of course, as the reader, we know the, the narrator is trying to help us understand God's at work. That God is behind the scenes and he is caring and, you know, moving out with his purposes and his plan behind the scenes. The next verse says this, just then, again, another moment of God working, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. <clears throat> so in chapter two, we see God, his mercy um, in the midst of their darkness. And they can't see it all of the time, but we see that God is weaving together his story for his purposes and his uh, his plan. Now, not only do they go out and they see, we see God's resources, but we also meet Boaz, who becomes a place of refuge for Ruth and Naomi. This is what it says next. Um, in chapter two, we read about Boaz. Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean another, another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. So Ruth happened to be in Boaz's field. And Boaz was a man of God who was following the law, allowing for um, the people who were 
poor to glean in his field so they could be cared for. That was part of God's welfare system for those who were marginalized at this time. Boaz is doing that. He meets Ruth and says, stay in my field and don't go away from here. The next verse, he provides refuge for her. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and fall along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water just uh, jars the men have filled. So again, Boaz is looking out for her. He's providing refuge for her. I've told all the guys not to touch you, not to take advantage of you, not to harass you. So he is looking out for her. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Then he makes this statement of praise and then prayer. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Look at his response. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since your death of your, the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother, your homeland, and came to live with a people you did not know before. Next verse. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is powerful. They're in a really dark spot. She just shows up at a field. It happens to be Boaz's field. He says, hey, glean here. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. Then he offers this prayer for her, which is powerful. May the Lord you know, find refuge under the wings of the Lord. Now, this is a, the powerful statement. We'll see this, why this is powerful a little bit later in this next chapter. So this is God's invisible hand of providence working in their lives. And I just love the fact that that God works behind the scenes even when we can't see it because we have a God who is that powerful and that amazing. Now, as we turn to Ruth chapter three, um, in this chapter, we see how God can make all things new. God can make all things new. So far, it's been pretty pretty bad and it's been pretty bleak for them. Even still, they're, they're they're on the welfare system of, of ancient Israel. They're just barely gleaning enough to eat day by day. There is no future, no hope. There is still in a dark spot. But in chapter 3, we begin to see how God can make things new. And when we come to this chapter, what I want you to see is that how, how God is a God of redemption. How God is a God of second chances. And as we read this passage, what I want you to see is the redemption stories in the lives of the characters here, but I also want you to be reminded that God is a God of redemption in your life as well. The God's a God of second chances. The God is a God who can make things new for you personally, for us as a church, as we enter into this new year, God wants to do a new thing. He can redeem us. He has a plan, and it's good, and he wants to make things new in our life. It's what God does. It's who he is. He's a God who redeems. Amen? And we get to see that played out here, continuing here in this, this next chapter. So what I want to do um, is I want to read the passage for you, but as we come to it, let me just remind you that at the end of chapter 2, the, the end of chapter 2 closes with the fact that the end of the harvest had come. That they had, she had been gleaning in, in Boaz's field, Ruth had been, and she'd been doing that for several months, but now the, the, the harvest is coming to an end, and that's how that chapter closes. So here's, here's an interesting spot they find themselves in again. They've had food because they've been able to glean, but now that harvest is over, the question is, well, what's next? How, who, who are they going to connect with How are they going to be cared for? Are they going to have food to eat now that the harvest is over? 
What are they going to do? In a certain sense, Naomi finds herself back in the same position she was in the first chapter, where the food is running out. The harvest is ending. The question is, is Naomi this time going to stay in the midst of the hardship and trust in God's providence? And is she also going to care for the person that God's placed in her life? Ruth, is she going to abandon her or is she going to care for her as her responsibility? That's the question. And we get to read about what happens in this chapter, Ruth chapter three. So what I want to do is I want to invite you, if you're able to please stand, we'll read this passage together and we'll see what happens next. Ruth chapter three, beginning in verse one, this is what it says. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best, best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned And there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, um, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as the guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before every... Anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. And we'll take a look at the passage. Beginning in verse 1, let's look at it together. It says this, One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. So, Here's what I want you to see in this first verse. What I want you to see is in in a moment when the food is going to run out, Naomi doesn't run away from God. And she doesn't run away from her responsibility to Ruth. 
At this point, she says, you know what? I, I'm going to find you a home. I want you to be provided for. So it's at this moment here that Naomi recognizes, I'm going to step up. I'm going to care for this daughter-in-law that God has given to me. So she's stepping up, and it's different. It's, a, it's, a, it's in contrast to um, what she did in the first chapter. Her faith has been renewed because she has watched what God has done um, in Ruth's life and in their life as he's provided for them. And this whole time she's been watching this happen, she's beginning to think, okay, maybe God is still there. Maybe God has a plan. And so she's going to step up and say, I'm going to take responsibility. I want to care for Ruth in this process. So she has a plan. And guess who it involves? Of course, it involves Boaz. Look at verse 2 with me. It says this. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So she says, hey, guess what? Boaz, the guy who you have been working for, in, you know, working in his um, fields, he is a relative of ours. Now, you're saying to yourself, okay, well, wait a minute. Why is Naomi trying to set Ruth up with a relative of hers? You know, that might be, may, may sound a little bit strange, but in this culture, it would make um, complete and absolute sense. In fact, but Naomi is following God's plan, God's plan for um, how he was to care for, um, how he designed to care for the widow in that culture. Because when he says that he's a relative of ours, and earlier in chapter two, we said, we saw that he's the guardian redeemer. He is a garden dreamer, which in the, the Hebrew means is goel. That's the, the, the word goel, which means redeemer, which means rescuer. And this was a system that God had set up. Um, and it's in kind of the ancient world, it was, the, it was called the leveret marriage. That is, if a woman, her husband passed away, and she was now a widow, and she didn't have an heir, that there was this thing called leveret marriage that would uh, help protect her land and her lineage because land and lineage was, was carried through the, the male line. And so if, if she's a widow and she doesn't have an heir, she's left alone. She's vulnerable. She doesn't have those resources. She doesn't, the family line ends. The land goes away. And so God, in, in his care for the widow, had set up this thing called leveret marriage, which then if a widow was, uh, her husband had passed away, what would take place is the brother of the deceased husband who's unmarried would then marry his sister-in-law and he would care for the sister-in-law and, 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 and father a child with the sister-in-law. And, and through that, the, the family would, the line would continue. The land would be preserved. And this was God's way of caring for the widow in that time. Perhaps you remember the story of Judah and Tamar. That's a kind of a messy story of leveret marriage. And so this is the design that God had set up. Now, if there wasn't a brother to marry the, the sister-in-law who's widowed, then it was open to a relative. And at that point, it really was, um, it was voluntary. That if they could step forward, if they could and they wanted to, they could step forward and be the redeemer, be the rescuer, and marry the widow so that the family line and the land could be protected and cared for. And that's where um, uh, um, Boaz falls into. He is one of the relatives that could step in as the goel, the redeemer, the rescuer in this 
case. And so Naomi is thinking to herself, man, it would be so great if Boaz were to fall in love with Ruth and choose to marry her because then we would have security. Then we would have a future and our family line would continue. So she's thinking this through and she's thinking, okay, here's Boaz. He's a relative. And she's going, okay, so I got to come up with a plan. She's been watching this over the last couple of months as the, during the harvest, waiting, of course, probably for Boaz to make a move. And Boaz hasn't. So she's tired of waiting for this Boaz-Ruth connection to take place. And so she comes up with a plan. And this is the plan. It says, tonight he will be, uh, let's go back to the next verse, just so you can see it. It says, tonight um, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Then go to the next verse. Wash Put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 4. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, um, this is her plan. And the question is, is this uh, a good plan or a bad plan? <laughs> when you read it, it's possible that you could look at the plan like this and say, this sounds a little bit scandalous. And quite honestly, biblical scholars are divided over it. There are some scholars that say this is wildly inappropriate and other scholars who say it's not inappropriate at all. I think it's pretty complicated, quite honestly. Because I do think that Naomi is stepping up and she wants to do right but I think she's doing it in a wrong way. I think she wants to come up with a good plan. She wants to do what's right for her daughter-in-law, but I don't think she's doing it in the right way. Well, just, and you're saying, well, how come it's not right? Well, let me just, just looking at it at face value, I can just say this. This is not the kind of advice that I'm going to be giving to my daughters when it comes time to find a husband. I'm not going to be saying to my girls, okay, girls, if there's a guy that you want to marry... You know, just wait till he goes camping, okay? And after he's had some food and a few beers, then just watch what tent he goes into. And then when you find out what tent he goes into, then, okay, go then bathe and then perfume, dress up, get, look great. Then sneak into his tent at night, unzip his sleeping bag and say, tell me what to do. On face value, that does not sound good, does it? I mean, that's not the advice I'm going to be giving to my girls. It's a little, it makes you a little uneasy, right? So if you're feeling that, the question is, well, what's going on here? Is this inappropriate or not? And under, to help us understand that, you do need to understand the history and the context of what's going on here. First of all, it says, it, it says in this passage that, um, that Naomi comes up with this plan and the timing is, is critical. She says, go to him while he's on the threshing floor. Well, why this time? And the, the answer to that is the threshing floor had a reputation of being a place and a time of sexual immorality where sexual immorality would take place on the threshing floor. And the question is, well, well why would this take place? Well, part of it is because what you have here on the threshing floor is it's the end of the harvest and so there's celebration, and at celebration, there's feasting, there's drinking, and um, as, a, as, a, as a result of that, you know, um, there's, and, there's, and it's the end of the harvest time where there's, there's money. So as of course, this is a time where prostitutes would show up. 
And we know that because in Hosea 9, it says this. Let me look at this passage. It says, Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Why are the prostitutes showing up? Well, again, you have guys who at the end of the harvest, they're celebrating the end of the harvest. So there's eating, there's drinking, and it's payday. So the prostitutes show up. And again, this is not a moral high point in Israel's history. So this was probably a common practice that this would be a place of celebration where there would be propositioning going on during this time of the threshing floor. So it's not a great time. Everyone probably would have known that this was a practice. There was, there was this um, reality of temptation through sexual immorality through the threshing floor. So there's that piece. But then beyond that, it helps, you understand the his- it helps to understand the history of the Moabites, and when you think about the history of the Moabites, of where they're founded, then it becomes, you become a little even more skeptical of, of, this, of this plan and the scandal of it. The history of the Moabites goes back to Gen- Genesis 19. And the, his- the way that the Moabites were founded were f- through an incestuous relationship between the daughter and her father. Lot is the father, and his daughters get Lot drunk. And then as he gets drunk, they sleep with him and so that they can have offspring. And the oldest daughter does conceive and she gives birth and she names her son Moab, which means, who's your daddy? <laughs> and it's, it's a name that's given to kind of like point out the scandal of how this nation was founded. And so this is the history of the Moabites. And so this would have been, of course, well known that this is how the Moabite nation was founded. And then a little bit later, when the Israelites were working their way to the promised land, the the Moabites got nervous. They got scared of the Israelites coming coming through the promised land. And so you may remember the story. The king of Moab, his name was Balak, and 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 or Balak, Balak hired a guy named Balaam to curse the Israelites because he was scared of the Israelites. This is the king of Moab. So he hires this guy to curse the, the Israelites. Balaam comes. He can't curse the Israelites. And as much as he tried and as much, much to the chagrin of Balak, the king of Moab, it doesn't work. But here's what Balaam does. He still finds a way to cause the nation of Israel to stumble. He tells Balak, hey, you want to get the nation of Israel to stumble? Take some of those Moabite women and allow them to seduce the men, and they'll fall into sexual immorality and idolatry. And guess what? Sure enough, that's what happened. They use the women to seduce the men. The men fall into sexual immorality and idolatry, and it causes a great downfall in the nation of Israel. So again, this is all part of the history of the Moabites. And so Moabite women have a bit of a scandalous history. So the timing in the history, it makes you go, wait a minute, Naomi, are you asking Ruth to kind of go back to her Moabite instincts and seduce Boaz? That's kind of what's going on in my mind. I think it's complicated, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do know, that God can use um, even imperfect plans for his perfect purposes. God can use even our, what, we, what we think is a good thing done in the wrong way. He can still use it because he's sovereign to accomplish his 
purposes. And that's what I think is going on here in this place. Naomi's stepping up, just maybe not stepping up in all the right ways. Um, and then we see, uh, but what we see is God still working. And it's what's amazing is seeing Ruth's response to all of this. Um, look at what it, what, how she responds in verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Next verse. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. Of course, what guy isn't in good spirits after he's had food and drinks, right? Then he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Why are they sleeping by the grain pile? This is a, a way of protection, um, too, of their, their crop. And so to, to protect it from thieves, they would st- sleep and stay there. Of course, again, with all the other stuff going on, it could be... Um, there's inappropriateness that could take place at that time too. But Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So like a ninja, she sneaks in, and she, she gets next to where he's sleeping, and she does exactly what Naomi said. She uncovers his feet. Now, this next verse says this, In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Well, he had cold feet. That's what startled him. He woke up, my feet are cold. And he turned, and there was a woman lying there at his feet. So he's shocked. There's a woman at his feet, and they're freezing. Um, so then the next verse, it says this. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Here's an amazing thing. She, he asked, who are you? And she, she said, I'm Ruth. Now, she had followed Naomi's plan every, every single way that Naomi had said, but here's where she deviates. Instead of saying, tell me what to do, she instead says to Boaz, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And what does she ask him to do? She says this, I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So instead of propositioning Boaz, She's proposing to him, is what she's doing. She's saying, will you spread your garment over me? Will you provide covering? Will you be my redeemer, my rescuer? Will you marry me? That's what she's asking. And it's a powerful thing, and it goes back to even chapter 2, where Boaz had made that prayer that she would come under the refuge of the Lord's wing. And now Boaz is becoming an answer to his own prayer Because Ruth is saying, will you be that refuge? Can I come under your wing, under the protection of your garment, under the protection of your care? Will you be my guardian redeemer? So it's a beautiful statement. She changes the plan. Last minute, she says, hey, will you be my guardian redeemer? And then verse 10 going on, it says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This is Boaz's response. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So she could have found a husband in lots of other ways, or at least companionship. There's, there's nothing stopping her from chasing after guys and chasing after relationships. She doesn't. And then this is what he says. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you what you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. This word noble character goes back to uh, Proverbs 31, that she has noble character, that everyone knows that she's a woman of character. She's, She's remarkable in that way. Not the picture of a Moabite woman that lots of people had from history and past. She's breaking the mold. She is different 
in the way that she's responding as a foreigner, as a Moabite woman. And it's, and it's notable. Then the next verse. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Next verse. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to do this, his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So a couple of things are going on. He says, yes, I will do it. I will be your guardian redeemer. I will marry you. But there's someone else in the family who has right, has the first right of refusal. He, he's the closer relative. And this is an amazing thing about Boaz that he, of course, he could have just said, okay, let's go secretly elope and just go deal, do it. But he's following the law. He's, he's, he's still a man of character who says, this is, this is what God has set up. I'm going to respect God's law. And which also maybe helps us understand maybe why he hasn't taken a, made a move on Ruth yet, why he hasn't stepped forward because he knew that there was someone else who was a closer relative. Maybe on the other end, he also felt like he was too old to be a, a Ruth's husband. And so he kind of self-eliminated himself. Either way, we do recognize that he's fond of, of Ruth, that he has noticed her character and who she is, and he's more than willing. He wants to um, step in and redeem her. And he says, surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. Now, here's another amazing thing about both Boaz's character and Ruth's character. This is a moment of temptation. This is a moment where lots of things could take place, but, but he doesn't take advantage of the situation. He does not take advantage of Ruth. He wants to follow the law. He, there is a plan. He wants to go through the right steps. So he doesn't take advantage of her in this moment. In fact, he wants to protect her reputation. Look at the next verse. It says this. So she, so she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could recognize her. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. So he's looking out for her reputation again. He said, again, nothing happened here, but she, he didn't take advantage of her. She didn't come in to proposition, but he still wants her to be protected and cared for because of the reputation of the threshing floor at this time. So he wants to care for her. But then notice what happens next. Um, he also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed, it, placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to the town. So before she goes away, he says, hold out the shawl, and he pours out six measures of barley. Now, six measures of barley is about 60 to 80 pounds. So Ruth is a strong woman in more ways than one, right? I mean, she's... She's pulling back. She's, holding, she's got this massively heavy bundle of measures of barley that she's taking back to her mother-in-law, which is, really, which is a really cool part of the story. Look at the next verse. It says this. When Ruth came back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her um, everything Boaz had done for her. Next verse. And, and he added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Isn't that amazing? Remember in chapter one, when she comes back to Bethlehem, she said, call me Mara, I'm bitter. I, I went away full and now I'm empty. And here now God is saying, I don't want, God is saying to Naomi, you are no longer empty handed. 
that I'm caring for you, I've provided for you, even in the midst of the darkness that you could not see any kind of future, that God is still at work and he's caring for um, Naomi in this moment. And so he says, so this is a powerful thing. Then verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until this matter is settled today. So she says, wait, and just, we got to wait because Boaz is on the move. And he's going to make a move. Now, this leaves us a little bit of a cliffhanger because um, the, we don't know, is the, is the other relative going to step in and redeem Ruth? And, and then all of a sudden, Boaz is out of the picture? Or is Boaz going to get the girl? What's going to happen next? And in order to find out, you have to come back next week <laughs> and see how this story ends and see what takes place and how God continues to work in this story. Now, before we go, though, I do want to mention this, that this really truly is a story of redemption. It's a story in which we see um, God working to redeem lives. And every person in this, in this story, we see a second chance. We see a reset moment. We see redemption in every person's story. Look at the stories here. We have Naomi. Naomi, she went away from God. She gave in. She gave up. She, she, you know, she said, God's abandoned me. Of course, she had nothing to do with it. She's like, well, of course, she didn't mention the fact that she went away from God in the first place. But now here in chapter 3, she has an opportunity to step up. And albeit her plan was a little questionable, she still wants her daughter in-law Ruth to be cared for. So she steps up. She has a second chance and God honors her. He gives, he makes sure that she knows you're not going to be empty-handed. It's powerful. It's a redemption story. Then there's Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, who um, goes into this foreign land. She, he, she chooses to follow the one true God of Israel, but she doesn't know how things are going to play out, how things are going to unfold. She's put into a position to, to kind of relive out the history of the Moabite women in the past. And yet in this, this moment, she deviates. She chooses not to seduce, but to say, I'm going to go a different direction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this honorably. I'm going to ask to, mar- to marry me, not to try to seduce him, to get him to marry me. And it's, it's a powerful thing that there's a redemption in her story and in the, the Moabite uh, the understanding as well, which is a powerful thing. Then in, uh, the other person is Boaz. Boaz has a, a, a redemption story as well where he may have disqualified himself and felt like, hey, I don't deserve to have, you know, relationship or love or I'm too old or it's too far beyond it, but God is still caring for him and he recognizes his character and his, the way that he's behaving. And in fact, he's stepping in as the redeemer um, and the, the Goel, this, this guardian redeemer in this place. And the last time we saw a guardian redeemer step up, it was really ugly. The Ruth Tamar situation was was really, I'm sorry, the uh, Judah Tamar situation was really ugly. But here now, here's a guy who's stepping forward and saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And so there's a redemption story there. But I only ask you this too, there's, there's another part of Boaz's story that I think is so powerful that I don't want you to miss before we go here. And this, this, do you remember who Boaz's mother is? Boaz's mother, her name is Rahab. Have you heard of Rahab. In the Old Testament, she had a sort of a label that went along with her name. Do you remember what that label was? It's Rahab the, yeah, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot, depending on your translation. That's her label. That's how she's referred to. This is Boaz's mom. 
Rahab the prostitute. And here's this amazing thing, that she helped the, the, God's people, and then she married a, 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 an Israelite man, and they have a son named Boaz. She raises him, and she raises one remarkable son, doesn't she? I mean, here's a guy who is following the law, who's caring for the marginalized. Here's a guy who is looking out for Ruth's interests and making sure that she's not taken advantage of as a foreigner. And he understands that from his own mother and his own experience. He's looking out for her. He's put put in a position where he could fully take advantage uh, of this young woman, but he doesn't. He stands above all of that. He has integrity. He has a character. And I'll tell you, I bet his mother would have been so proud, right? Because here's the thing. Rahab had the label of being a prostitute, but she had a great lineage. She raised a good boy. And here's what I want you to hear, because it's so powerful that our past does not have to determine our future. Isn't that good news? That our past mistakes, our past labels, our past hurts, our past challenges do not have to dictate our future in the Lord. Because God is a God of second chances. God is a God who redeems. And you may have labels that you carry that you tell yourself and that you, 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 you've, hold, you've held on to for a long time, your past brokenness, that's the sin that you've chosen or brokenness that's happened to you, and you've held on to those labels. But listen, your past does not have to determine your future. Some of you are holding on to the label of, of being a dropout or being divorced or being damaged in some way, being deceptive, being a drunk, an addict, being a failure, being unlovable. You're holding on to whatever label it may be from your past. But listen, your past does not have to determine your future when God is a part of it. God is the God of second chances. He's a God who redeems. This past week, I had an opportunity to sit down with Ronnie Villegas. Some of you know Ronnie. Ronnie. And it was fun for me to get to know Ronnie. I know, it's fun. I got to hear a little bit of his story. And then I heard part of his story, his past. There were some labels there that he, he even talked about. That if you know his story, you, you know that he, he probably had some of those labels. Ronnie the drug dealer. Ronnie the rebel. But you know what he is now? Ronnie the redeemed. That years ago, God broke into his life. He found forgiveness. He found hope. He found a second chance because God is a God of redemption. He can take the pain and the brokenness in our lives and he can turn it into something beautiful. And you know what's beautiful is that Ronnie leads the Celebrate Recovery Ministry here. Yes. And he walks alongside people who are hurting and are broken. He points them to Jesus because Jesus redeems He forgives, he reconciles, he gives us a second chance and you're never too far and it's never too late to turn around and turn to Jesus. Here's my encouragement. If you're here, I just want to encourage you, if you've been running, stop running. Turn and say, God, I'm here. Will you redeem me? Will you change my life? Will you give me a second chance? 
And maybe you've done that at some point in your life, but you've been running on your own for way too long and you need to stop and say, God, I've been doing it on my own. I've been trusting in my own resources, my own power, but I need to turn to you and ask for your power to do work in me so that my story could be a redemption story, that you could use me to be a light in the life of others. That's what he does for us individually. It's what he can do for us as a church. He can take the pain of the past and turn it into something beautiful because God is a God who redeems. Let's take a moment and let's thank him for that together. God, we are so grateful for your mercy, for your grace, for how you work in our lives. And even when we don't see it, you're a God of love and care. And Lord, we, as we come to you this morning, each one of us has certain labels that we carry, certain things that we have that are broken parts of our past, broken pieces. And Lord, we, um, we sometimes allow those to dominate who we are, but Lord, when we come and we turn to you, those labels can burn away because our past does not determine our future when we come to you. That you can do a new thing in us, that you can change us, you can redeem us and make a beautiful story out of each one of us. And it comes through Jesus Christ, not on our own. We can't fix ourselves, we can't take it away, but Lord, as we come to you, as we bow at your feet, experience and receive your forgiveness through faith, You can change us. And so, Lord, we come to you now in faith and ask that you would do a work in us and through us by your grace, in your name, amen.